0: So folks, we are trying, and, and this is Mormon Discussion Incorporated, and this is an idea I came up with um, some time ago, um, and just in the last week or so, ran it by a few folks and just wanted to kind of get the idea of whether this would be interesting or not. I'm actually really passionate about this, and one thing I thought about doing was creating a virtual online Mormon museum. We've only raised $130 so far. Um, my goal is $90,000, but I think I can pull this off if we raise about 30 grand. And so I hope that folks will take seriously this project. What I think it would look like, uh, if you go on to some of these virtual museums, the Smithsonian has one, there's lots of them that are out there. And essentially a map of the museum is on the front. You pick which exhibit you want to go see. Once you go to the exhibit, there is multiple um, items uh, in these exhibits. And each item would have a picture. And so these would be items in church history, either replicas or the real thing. And then we would attach audio, good, clean, professional audio to each of these exhibits and share some of the deeper history about Mormonism. And so in my mind, I picture a picture like what you're seeing right now. And we would talk about Joseph Smith finding his first seer stone in 1822. We would talk about uh, how Joseph found his second seer stone. Uh, sorry, eighteen nineteen for the first year stone, eighteen twenty two for the second one while d- uh, digging on the Willard Chase property. And I think this would be a really fascinating way to share church history, to share the messiness. And my hope would be folks, I'll put the website uh, in the in the show notes here uh, in the comments. But if anybody sees interest in this, I would love if we could raise several thousand dollars and get this thing off the ground and create a Mormon, uh, a virtual Mormonism museum. And I would do this from a very objective, unbiased point of view. Uh, This would be something that would be interesting and grab the attention of both believers and disbelievers alike. And uh, if you think this would be uh, something that would be helpful to our community, my two cents is go to the link that's in the comments, wherever you're watching this, and uh, donate today. And my goal is to raise 90 grand, but if I could raise 30 grand, I think I can pull this off. And I've already got tons of objects. Uh, one of the owners of Family Pond, who's a good friend of mine, who was on the podcast last week. Chris has tons of objects in his home Brigh- Brigham Young, Canes, uh, original first editions of books, uh, artifacts, uh, Mark Hoffman Sear Stone. There's just lots of things that we've got that we could put this museum together pretty easy. Um, the biggest thing is the website and the IT stuff. And so, if if you could go to the website that was posted, it's on GoFundMe. You can also go to GoFundMe and just search for Virtual Mormonism Museum. And I'd love to to get this thing done. Um, R.F.M. I'll turn the time over to you now for the episode. I I, I think, by the way, before you start, this is a brilliant uh, thing that you've got planned out for tonight, and I'm really excited about the links you've sent me. And so let's uh, let's tackle it.
1: Well, we're getting started about 15 minutes late tonight, thanks to me and Technical Difficulties once again. I hope everybody's ha- hung in there. And uh, it's, we're getting started at Mormon Standard Time tonight, Bill, is what it is.
0: Yeah, it feels like, uh, like a, a social
1: that we're getting together at the ward building. Well, tonight's episode is titled, What Bad Faith Looks Like. And it has to do with a piece of artwork, a specific piece of artwork that uh, I saw in January in the January issue of the the Leahona It used to be the Inside, now it's the Leahona I'm gonna to have to explain it every time, I think, until we get used to calling it the Leahona But it was just a couple months ago, the very first ever issue, and there was a picture in there. And I saw that picture and I went, oh my gosh, this looks like bad faith. This is what bad faith looks like. And so in order to get to that picture, which we will by the end of the program tonight, we're gonna to have to go back a few years. And first off, this picture, yes, has to do with a uh, rendition or a portrayal or artwork of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, right? So 40 years ago, when I joined the church in 1978, I took the missionary discussions, and they told me about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. They had flip charts. Remember those? I don't mm-hmm. know if they still have them. But uh, there is a picture in there, and I think it's kind of a close-up of Joseph Smith. And you could see him looking down at these, these gold plates, and I think he had his finger On top of the gold plates and he was concentrating hard because that you know translating is hard work and this is how it was portrayed as joseph smith what translating is hard work it is and he was you know furrowed brow the whole nine yards i go on my mission i go to japan i've got a little flip chart and i you know it has the same picture or a variation of that picture because there's a, a fistful of variations of this picture depictions artwork that the church has Uh, the missionaries teach from or at least used to and uh, shows up in their their church manuals shows up in their uh, church magazines whenever they need a picture of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon they've got one of these that they'll put in there and all of them even though they're different by different authors they have some commonalities and mainly it's Joseph Smith is looking at the plates and there's no rock and there's no white hat stovepipe hat in any of the pictures And so what ended up happening is that the church by doing this sort of artwork, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. So this artwork ends up ingraining in the mind of the members that this is how Joseph Smith translated the book of Mormon. I mean, it's an approved church horses The missionaries are teaching it. If you go to the library, you're teaching a lesson, right? You go to the ward library, you need a picture of Joseph Smith translating the book of Mormon. This is what you're going to get. So after a while though, Word started getting out among certain members of the church that this was not exactly the way things went down with the whole translation process. What? Was it really a white top hat? You're good. I'm just trying to answer the question while you're talking. If, if I'm saying top hat, stovepipe hat is the technical term. Yeah. Okay. Top hats were what they called in like 1920s, 1930s. But it's it's a deep hat with a high, you know, and high it high white. It was white that Joseph Smith used. Yes. Um, so... Stove by pad, if I said top pad, there you go. Um, now, people started getting wise to this. People started hearing that there were witnesses to this who described it very differently, and they described not Joseph Smith looking at the plates, but frequently the plates seemed to be an accessory that wasn't even required for the translation to take place. A lot of times it was in a different room, sometimes hidden by a, a napkin or some kind of material. And that Joseph Smith, in translating the Book of Mormon, is actually not looking at the plate like the Plates Like all the artwork showed, but as often as not, he has his head buried in a hat into which he has placed his seer stone and he's dictating the Book of Mormon out of his hat. So people are finding out about that. And number one, they're feeling they're they're feeling kind of like this is strange. This is odd. This is not what we've been taught. And second off, why has the church been portraying it in a different way? in perhaps a more orthodox way of just looking at the place, like someone would study and translate in more of a normal way than telling the members the truth about what happened with uh, Joseph Smith Searstone in the stovepipe, the white stovepipe hat. And so this all kind of boiled over back in 2010 with the Swedish rescue. In fact, we just uh, passed the 10th anniversary of the Swedish rescue. I think it was November 28th of 2010. So last November 28th would have been a decade. Uh, can you tell us what the Swedish rescue was, Bill? You know about that, right?
0: Uh, yeah, except that, um, the Swedish rescue. So uh, Hans Matson is a Area 70, and I don't know if he's still currently serving in that calling at that time, um, but he discovers that the church's history and some of it's, Uh, historical issues, those things are not adding up. And uh, he reaches out to leaders and he's having conversations in Sweden with fellow members. And suddenly people are beginning to lose their faith. And as people lose their faith, uh, these folks, Hans Mattson leading the charge, are reaching back out to Salt Lake and saying, hey, things aren't adding up. We're all beginning to have serious doubts. And people start leaving the church. The church then sends out Marlon K. Jensen and Richard Turley uh, to have a special meeting where all of these folks who are having deep questions and and really doubts and beginning to become disenfranchised with the church, where they meet up and uh, Marlon Jensen and Richard Turley then proceed for I think about two hours, right? Two hours and 20 minutes. Two hours and 20 minutes to address the crowd, to have a conversation with them, trying to answer their questions. And by the way, I would suggest that every one of you should listen to the Swedish rescue and should be familiar with the way in which church leaders, and I think Marlon K. Jensen and Richard Turley are the two nicest options you could possibly send, and also informed and understand the messiness, and it's the best the church has got, and they really aren't able to answer the questions at all, and we'll get to some of that here. Right. I would say
1: that um, Marlon Jensen comes in as sort of like Ward Cleaver. He's the the parent in the room and trying to keep things to a low roar. And uh, Richard Hurley, who is assistant director of the um, church history department, is sort of like the Book of Mormon answer man. He's who's going to have the facts and the, the data that's going to help uh, answer these people's problems. So there are about 15 questions that get put up on the board. But what I've gone What I've done is I've gone back and I've listened to all two hours and 20 minutes of it, and I found three selections from different places in it. And they all have to do with this issue about the Book of Mormon Translation. And the first segment, which I think you have, it's a a timestamp, 32 minutes, and it'll go for uh, two minutes and 25 seconds, is the individual in the audience who's asking The question, so certainly has a Swedish accent, but I'll tell you, these people, including Hans, man, they speak English very, very well. Uh, It's really amazing how well they speak English, at least to me. There is the accent, so I just want to prepare you for that, but it's not a huge obstacle to understanding what's going on. And this is a two-part question that he asks, first part having to do with uh, why was it done this way and why weren't the plates used in spite of the fact that the Nephites went to all this trouble of, you know, inscribing on them and hiding them and, collating them and bringing them forth and all that stuff. Right. And then the second part of the question is why is it the church hasn't told us about this, but given us a different impression through the artwork. Do you have that audio clip? Oh, and also we're borrowing this from, um, we're stealing it from Mormon stories who has it on their website and it plays the, um, the audio, but also has somebody did a transcript and you can see the transcript of the words while the audio is playing.
0: Yeah, and let me do something here real quick. Let me um, let me copy the URL address so that other folks can later on have this as a source uh, in the show notes. So I just I, I followed uh, Mormon Stories' link to uh, YouTube, and so here we go. This is the Swedish uh, rescue. We're, uh, we'll, we'd
2: like to have
3: your 10 questions, and then we can talk about it. I'll give the word to, to the... Okay. Your wife, Matt.
2: I'll start then. can um, we always We can that So that is four. Okay, so All
3: right, one of my questions uh, there you is exploring the process of how the book of Mormon came about.
2: And uh, growing up in the church, I remember still that when I was taught about how the Book of Mormon came about, especially the pictures shown to me in primary, which was me on where we have Joseph Smith sitting on one side of the curtain and his scribe on the other, and Joseph Smith had the, the plates in front of him, uh, translated from them. Uh, and also, as a missionary and as a Sunday school teacher, we've we been taught and are taught, you know, the importance of the original plates and then coming about, you know, how had to make the choice of killing Nathan in order to, to get the plates and how to then pass them forward from father to son for a thousand years. And Morona almost died in just trying to pursue, preserve them and finally then buried them with the Incomora. And then finding out then by, by recognized historians, even members of the church, how, how the process isn't really corresponding with that picture. Then in fact, the, the translation, or well the, how the Book of Mormon came about was actually by Joseph Smith, looking into the hat in a seer stone, a stone that he found in a well. And the stone that he used both before and after becoming a prophet in, in seeking for treasure. Uh, and this, then the question to me that I don't expect you to answer but, you know, there's a lot of efforts being made in order to make these plates come about and they weren't even part of the process. They were hidden away most of the time, sometimes not even in the same room, while the writing was being done. That's one question obviously that I don't expect you to answer. But the second question is, okay, good. But the second question is, why Why don't we present this device why, why do we still keep to this version that the plate we use in an actual translation process. I understand you're basically using a document and moving over to another document, while it's in fact was some sort of revelation, more or less, that may have come forward. Uh, so but that's my question, because I don't see that the, 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 the truth of the truth of to really we with So that's a confusion. I and mean, I would like to
1: get There we go. Well, very good question. That's good okay so there's the question i think that's hans monson who's actually great question question. very very well put both parts of the question now we have to actually go to a different place in the swedish rescue tape in order to find this because what they did is this this is how it's structured it's amazing that they have two general authorities well at least uh, Marlon Jensen's a general authority. I'm not sure about Richard Turley. He's a high up guy in the church historian's office. They fly them all the way over to Sweden because there's a problem going on. And they're long established members who are the core bedrock of this ward and stake are having real troubles and are starting to abandon ship over them. So they fly them all the way over to Sweden. They have them all come to this kind of super secret squirrel meeting that they're not supposed to tell their neighbors about. And they speak for two hours and 20 minutes. But when you break it down, like I did, they actually end up answering questions for only one hour, believe it or not. Here's what they do. They spend the first half hour giving their opening statements. They spend the second half hour, excuse me, spend the second half hour taking questions and writing them up on the board. So they get around 15, 16 questions written up on a board. That question was the first of those questions. Okay, that's why it's at the 32 minute mark. It's right after they're done with their opening statements. We're open up for questions. Now we're just going to take them all and write them up on the board. Then after that, you're at the one hour mark. And now they're going to answer these questions for an hour. And then they're going to give the last 20 minutes. It's going to be the closing statements. So they actually fly all the way over to Sweden to answer questions for one hour. But that's why this happens this way. So the answer to this question does not come immediately after the question is asked, instead it comes at timestamp 57 minutes and 25 seconds and it's actually there's two parts to it this is the first part and this is richard turley his voice as he answers this question that was asked about the uh, translation process
0: yeah so you ready to play it yes sir here we go so let's start with the
3: first one as i understand this question you were asking about why is there a difference between the way you first learned about the translation of book of mormon with church Art? showing you how it's done Joseph Smith here and the plates and a blanket and another scribe and so on. Cool. Basically the a challenge that we have is that over the course of generations people develop in their minds an idea about how something happens. It's particularly true in the second generation, third generation, fourth generation, and so on.
1: Can you hang on a second? Christian
3: art, for example.
1: Can you hang on a second? Because now he's going to give an example that has nothing to do with the question being asked, but he's going to take up time using this example as if it has anything to do with the the different artwork. Go
0: ahead. These people in Sweden dedicated their lives to what they believed was the true and living church of Jesus Christ, dedicated their lives to what they thought was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these guys are sent over to resolve their concerns and you and I know that you can't even cover one issue in an hour. We've tried it. We fail all the time, yes. right? Yes. And, and these guys go all the way over there. I mean, this is airplane, fuel, everything to give this group of folks an hour of their time, really, as you point mm-hmm. out, answering questions. And and it really does turn into a cluster. You know what? Oh, totally. But but here it is.
3: A lot of Christian art dresses people from the Holy Land in clothing and in environments that are not the Holy Land, they're Europe. And that's because that's their conception. This must be how it was done. So, what we have in church art very often is artists giving their idea of what it must have been like. But if you go back to the original documents, and get back to original documents that were sometimes difficult for people to find originally, what you see is a different picture. So the bottom line is we're trying to make our art conform with the sources so that people, when they see images of the way things are done, they'll understand it based not just on an artist's conception, but what the basic um, statements are. Let me just give you an example. Can you so,
1: hang on a second here, Bill? Yep. Okay. I just want to point out, we're not done with this clip because um, somebody, and I think it's Hans is going to be um, <laughs> interjecting here. He's not exactly waiting to raise his hand to be called on and good for him. Um, it's it's somewhere not long after they start answering questions that I think that uh, Marlon Jensen and Richard Shirley realize that they have lost complete control of this meeting. <laughs> it becomes a total cluster, like you said, but, the main thing that I want to point out is that not once, but twice, Richard Turley has now blamed the artists. Okay. First off, he says, so what we have in church art very often is artists giving their idea of what it must've been like. And that's sort of different from the sources he says, but, uh, or it can be. And in this case, obviously that's why he's bringing it up. And then in that next paragraph right before the question, he says the same thing again, he says, so the bottom line is we're trying to make our art conform with the sources so that people when they see images of the way things are done, they'll understand it based not just on the artist's conception, but on what the basic statements are. So he's blaming it on the artist. He's recognizing there's been a problem and he's saying now we're going to try and bring this in the next part. We're going to try and bring uh, the artwork into conformity with what the sources actually say. So go ahead. Here's here's uh, Hans, I think. Uh, breaking in. Yeah, we're gonna fix the problem, right?
2: Yeah. Well, how about it? There's a picture which okay. uh, and an evidence of it, but they it's yes. more the you. and even today, you know, the Urim and tummy for instance. Yes. So sorry but that's that okay. we don't focus on those pictures, but that's fine. Okay. All
4: yeah. right. All right.
3: More so, than so. let me just restate what you're saying. You're basically saying that the, the, the way the story is told, the way you've heard it traditionally differs from what you see in the historical sources. Oh, that's, <laughs> that correct? Right? And that is that is the kind of thing that does happen and what we're trying to do as a department, the church's department, is to bring the curriculum in conformity with the source. Let me just give you an example of one other Jensen mentioned. Last was it last week or week before? Last week. Last week we went to the church leaders and we said to them, our historical research about the restoration of the priesthood and where it was restored is different from what
1: our can you hang on here just a second bill yep. John- okay this is where he goes off on this other ridiculous example of how they realize that they need to change uh the artwork because actually the melchizedek priesthood or is it the i think it's the or is it the iranic priesthood is not restored uh, on the bank it's restored in the bush and so mm-hmm. it's actually restored in was it sugar maple grove and this is what he gives us an example by Something the way that, and i yeah. just
0: in and say when you point to Christian art and there's some anomalies in what people wear or the scenery or whatever other thing, the reality is they don't really have they don't really have source material and there's so much time in between these things being done that they're essentially either guessing or they're so used to what's around them in their milieu that that's what they're adding. That's a completely different problem than what's being pointed out here. We have historical sources. We're not much time removed from this this time happening, and there were good records kept. The things that we're not being honest about are in the sources being told differently. It seems like it's apples and oranges.
1: Well, it is because it's not what they're wearing. It's what they're doing. Yeah. Right? And that's a big difference. This is not uh, medieval people dressing... Uh, let's say the apostles who are putting Jesus's body into the tomb after the crucifixion. It's not about them dressing them in contemporary uh, clothing to the people who are painting it in the middle ages. Yeah. This is more like uh, they're painting these people, but they're not taking Jesus's body into the tomb. They're bringing it out of the tomb. Yeah. Or they have, hiding it away on Easter morning.
0: Right. Or they have Jesus portrayed as a female. Like they're getting it that wrong. And the data says like it happened some other way. And we've had, a- we've had access to this data from the beginning. If anybody's had access to the data, and most of us didn't, it was the LDS church and their archives.
1: And the history department. Yes, sir. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to go on and on and waste all this time from the one hour they have to answer the questions. But um, I tell you what. Can you just go ahead? Let's go ahead and play it because I want to get to the bottom part there where it says, so you've identified a genuine problem. But Let's just go ahead.
3: The head note for section 13 of the dark notes, section 13, the, the head note at the beginning says, coordination of Joseph Smith and Oliver Calvary to the erotic priesthood along the bank of the Susquehanna River, bank. Um, Do you understand the meaning of the term bank? Okay. You dumb Swedes. We went back to the original sources and Joseph Smith says that the restoration occurred in the woods. And Oliver Cowdery says it occurred in the bush, meaning we think a sugar maple grove. They used to call sugar maple groves the sugar bush. And if you look at the Susquehanna River here, and Joseph Smith's home here, the grove is probably up here, not here on the banks. So our historical research shows that the restoration doesn't occur here, it occurs here.
0: But can I just say, it sounds like they showed some slides and some pictures, right? Yeah, you think they were ready for this? They were ready for that and they were already prepared to deflect the question and go in a completely different direction and it was intentional. They they knew they were wasting these folks' time and that they were there to accomplish nothing.
1: Yeah. And to give an absolutely meaningless example, like saying, this is just like what you're talking about, when <laughs> really it's
0: not like it at all. No, I'll continue. I'm sorry. It's okay.
3: We're going to change information to make it conform with the church history. So you've identified a genuine problem. Often, the ways stories have been told over time don't conform with the history and so our goal is to try to make them
1: conform more closely okay so that's the end of that part of uh richard turley responding to this question it's going to come up again later but he's saying over and over it's the artist's conception and we're trying to, they're getting it wrong and our job is we're going to update the art and we're going to make it more closely match what the reality was that's in the documents But as I'm listening to Richard Turley, it just, it strikes me that his voice sounds so familiar to me. And I think, where have I heard that voice before? And then all of a sudden it occurred to me. Do you have that clip from that movie? Yeah, here it is. Now listen to the voice here and see if it doesn't sound very similar to Richard Turley.
3: Take your World War II. There were many heroes in World War II. What were your heroes? Who were your heroes? Let me clarify this.
1: Thank you for having me. Attaboy, boy, Luther. (laughs) I mean, and we're going to play this other clip from him so you can enjoy it now and and really see that uh, perhaps um, Richard Turley had another career before he went to the church history department. So let's see here. Uh, This is finally at the one hour and eight minute mark In 40 seconds, you see that there, right? I sent it to you. And this is just going to go for about a minute and a half. But this is where he talks about the last part. And this is where he says, you know, if you're not satisfied blaming the artists, then just blame us. Blame the historians. But whatever you do, please, please don't blame the prophets. Don't blame the guys who are in charge, okay? Because the buck doesn't stop with the prophet. The buck never got there. Blame us instead.
3: Uh,
2: sorry, you didn't say why you present this view. Why does the church present the view? Why doesn't the church say about the seer stone more officially?
3: In the early days of the church, they talked about it often. Mm-hmm. You get to a second generation, they present it the way that they tell the story. And over so many generations, each generation retells the story according to their own circumstances.
2: But we are led by revelations, the church. So, I mean, shouldn't then. The leaders correct so that not people every generation change the story. Or we could you see this every subject in the church? It's
3: much of what you get about the history comes from the historians and people like me. They do the best they can under the circumstances of their time. And then somebody else comes along later with new discoveries, new documents, and they rewrite Okay, So it's you know, don't put, don't put the responsibility on the process. But people like ordinary people like me, we're doing the best that, You know, we know how to do it, but somebody will come along later and do it better. For those of you who do anything, science, you know, you do the great best you can, the next generation will do it better. Isn't that true? It's true here also. Another last question, let's continue forward with the discipline of getting through
5: this.
1: Okay, so now he's done with the first question. And, and he is now going to Joseph Smith's wives and polyandry. He is running away because he's getting his arse kicked so bad on Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon that he's actually running to seek refuge in the subject of polyandry, if you can believe it. That's how bad he's getting his arse kicked. Anyway, I think that's funny. So uh, (laughs) blame the historians, blame the artists, but whatever you do, don't blame the prophets. It's not their fault. They have nothing to do with this. Everything happens in this church at a level underneath them, and they really don't have any decision making process that goes on. So that's the first part was back 10 years ago. November, 2010, already this issue is fomenting, bubbling. And we have Richard Turley on record as saying, yeah, we're aware of this and we're going to be changing this. We're going to be updating things in order to make it more accurately reflect what the actual documents are. So now we get to 2015, October, 2015, the enzyme magazine. And this is where they actually bring the seer stone that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon out of the church vault for a photo op. Did you have
0: any of those pictures? Uh. Uh, let me see here. If I don't, I don't know if I've got those.
1: Well, they're stunning. Let me tell you.
0: Um, you talk about this, the seer stone. Yeah. Um, I actually have it in the background on our stream yard, but you can't quite see it. I wonder. Oh, well, that's I- okay. No, they brought it out. I think people
1: know what it looks like. They brought it out for a photo op. You know, they, they did the lights. They put it on. They did makeup. They said, smile. They got the angle just right. And you know, they took a few pictures and they put it back in the, in the vault. There you go. And that's the pouch it was in too that they'd kept it in, in the church vault, which was really nice because they're trying to be more transparent. It was, uh, this photo op was done around the same time as the church essay, I think, on translation maybe was released. And, and it let us know something important, Bill. Well, the church has had this thing in their vault the whole time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, in fact, I learned at this time that this is where, you know, I learned the story that Wilford Woodruff set this thing on the Manti Temple Altar Uh, When he dedicates the Manti Temple, this seer stone is sitting there. And this is a story that I learned around the time that these pictures all came out.
1: And I'll tell you, that actually may have been a different seer stone because Joseph Smith had a collection. But I know what you're talking about. There was a seer stone that was put on the Manti Temple, the altar, at the dedication of it. And I'm not sure if it's that one there with a hole in the middle and all the little holes around it on the second row, second from the left. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's that. But
0: regardless, I wasn't there. Believe it or not, for the dedication of the Manti Temple, the, the eyewitness. We have one eyewitness who said she went to the church history uh, department, whatever that was at the time, and uh, somebody there relayed to her, and she came back with the story that it was the egg-shaped brown stone that was on the on the t- Manti Temple altar.
1: Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Bill. You are great. Always enjoy conversing with you. But in this, in this October 2015 Inside Magazine. There was also an article that was written and it was about Joseph Smith and his seer stone. And it was written by Richard Turley as well as two other scholars. Do you have that there? Yeah, I've got it. it Richard Turley Jr. Assistant church historian and recorder. He's all those things. Robin Jensen. Oh, who we, we know. Him before, yeah. And Mark Ashurst McGee and for the church history department
0: who I've interviewed and had several conversations uh, off the record with.
1: Well, you want to share with us what was said?
0: They are off the record. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I'm sure it'd be juicy. Okay. So go ahead. Would you scroll down? I don't even know if you know where I am.
0: Well, I know that I can find this spot, which is illustrating the translation process. You,
1: there's seeing and seers. Can you go up above this? Because there's a part. Yeah, uh, I'll shoot. find it. A second. the The paragraph starts with seeing and seers. And I should have...
0: That's all right. The mm-hmm.
1: meaning of seers. Hang on. Can you go back down? Okay, it's slower. Gone. Um, keep going. Keep there you okay. go. Here. Seeing and seers. Now, here's the great thing. Okay, I'm just gonna read through this really quickly. Maybe we can alternate like it's class. Okay, but what but what he's saying, what he's actually saying is that the church has been hiding this history for over a hundred years, but he has to use uh, he has to be diplomatic in the way he puts it. So here's what he does. Seers, seeing and seers were part of the American and family culture in which Joseph Smith grew up. There's nothing wrong with that sentence, but going on. Steeped in the language of the Bible and a mixture of Anglo-European cultures brought over by immigrants to North America, some people in the early 19th century believed it was possible for gifted individuals to see or receive spiritual manifestations through material objects such as doo doo doom seer stones. Can you go with the next paragraph, Bill? Oh, you had a big
0: one. Yeah, the young Joseph Smith accepted such familiar folk ways of his day, including the idea of using seer stones to view lost or hidden objects. Since the biblical narrative showed God using physical objects to focus people's faith or to communicate spiritually in ancient times, Joseph and others assumed the same for their day. Joseph's parents, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, affirmed the family's immersion in this culture. In their use of physical objects in this way, and the villagers of Palmyra and Manchester, New York, where the Smiths lived, sought out Joseph to find lost objects before he moved to Pennsylvania in late 1827.
1: Okay, so notice how that uh, it really nicely skirts the issue of whether this article or the church is taking a position on whether any of that
0: actually worked. Yeah, and, and by the way, they don't want, yeah, that's just it. They don't want to say that seers actually see because then you have to honor Lumen Walters and Sally Chase and everybody else in Palmyra who's got a rock in a a day job finding lost items. And, uh, but they also don't want to say it doesn't work because then you're throwing Joseph Smith under the bus for the scam of helping people find fictional Spanish silver mines, right? Well, it is part of
1: the problem now that you mention it, isn't it? If you use the same Mm -hmm. method to find the lost treasure as you do to translate the book of Mormon, How do you say one of them didn't work for beans, but the other one worked like a charm?
0: Yeah, especially when both uh, experiences involve guardian spirits, golden treasures, buried in hills with the use of rocks, right? (laughs) Okay, now watch how he navigates this minefield. (laughs) For those
1: without an understanding of how 19th century people in Joseph region live their religion, seer stones can be unfamiliar, and scholars have long debated this period of his life. Partly as a result of the Enlightenment or Age of Reason, a period that emphasized science and the observable world over spiritual matters, many in Joseph's day came to feel that the use of physical objects such as stones or rods was superstitious or inappropriate for religious purposes. So what did they do, Bill? You get the last paragraph on this.
0: Let's do it. In later years, as Joseph Smith told his remarkable story, he emphasized his visions and other spiritual experiences. Wait, what does that mean? He emphasized his visions and other spiritual experiences. Um, it means he quit talking about the rock and the hat, right? And he started talking about. <laughs> it. And I wonder because we have the quote from Joseph Smith that uh, treasure digging wasn't profitable. He made the fourteen bucks a month. He yes. put that away. We don't get anything in the church about the conversations that uh, um, Emma Smith's father and brothers comment about him promising to give up his treasure digging. We don't get any information that Dan Vogel puts into his dialogue article that includes that there were 17 treasure digs. We don't get the information about the Mormon Hill that is still existing today, where you and I used to think when we first learned about treasure digging, that it was like digging like a well, basically and seeing what you find and maybe the treasure's down there. But instead they dug out like entire caverns into sides of Hills. The, The uh, depth and breadth of Joseph Smith's treasure digging is expansive, and yet we get none of it. And what we do get is Joseph Smith moving on from it because it wasn't conducive to building faith and him talking about other things. Um, And I'm happy to continue here. Some of his former associates focused on his early use of seer stones in an effort to destroy his reputation or just tell the truth, right? Like tell the story as it is. By the way, they've already admitted it's true. But now they're saying it was for an evil intent that they told the truth. And if he acknowledged it and talked openly about it and owned what it was, then, you know, Philastrius Hurlbutt wouldn't have much to say, would he? No. No, no, he wouldn't. Um, In an effort to destroy his reputation in a world that increasingly rejected such practices. So, what they're saying here the leaders still do because they don't use the seer stone they still reject the practice.
1: Right, and they're going to say what what they're not going to say, but this is what it means is that the church went along with it. So former associates try to destroy his reputation. Why would it destroy his reputation?
0: Well, because the world is increasingly rejecting such practices. That's no, true. No, it's because he tried to find fictional Spanish silver mines that kept disappearing into the earth and the entire act was a scam and a fraud and and as much as kind of understood as you dive into the data and you mine the data, no no pun intended, well, maybe, pun intended, um, and you start to learn about all of this, you realize just how much and pervasive this practice is with Joseph and his brothers and his family and others in the Palmyra area. And again, we have very little data that points to them finding anything. And it's an absolute, one of my favorite words, demonstrable fact that the Spanish silver mines are fictional. They don't exist. Now, you could say, but maybe... But again, that's irrational. There are no, there is no evidence in Palmyra of Spanish people coming and burying their treasures in the earth, and and, and then it gets even worse when we talk, start talking about drawing magic circles and slitting dogs' throats and sheep throats and and the rituals that are involved with the guardian spirits. It gets cray cray when you dive into this subject at its full extent, which maybe someday we'll do. But go ahead, because now he's actually saying that the church
1: not only does Joseph start hiding it that the church starts hiding it too because the world is increasingly rejecting these practices.
0: Yeah. In their proselytity, I'm sorry, in their proselyting efforts, Joseph and other early members chose not to focus on the influence of folk culture. Hmm, why? As many prospective converts were experiencing a transformation in how they understood religion in the age of reason. Huh? Age how, of reason. How Ooh. directly do you have to say they were hiding it? Yeah. In what became canonized revelations, however, Joseph continued to teach that seer stones and other syric devices, uh, not to be uh, confused with Hannah Syriac, uh, other syric devices, as well as the ability to work with them, were important and sacred gifts from God. If they're important and sacred gifts, why the hell aren't we just able to talk about them?
1: I know. So they're trying to have it both ways now. What they're trying to say is they stopped talking about it because it was impeding the growth of the church because it was superstitious and the world's moving away from superstition in the age of reason. Therefore, we're going to hide it. But he still talks about like the the white stone in Doctrine and Covenants section 130 or 131, right, that everybody's going to get when they enter into the celestial kingdom. Yeah. So that's what they're referring to there. So they're trying to say, well, they were hiding it, but they weren't hiding it, even though they were actually hiding it. This is playing both ends against the middle. But I've never seen an article where it's more clear that what they're saying is, yeah, the church was hiding this for over 100 years. And now word's getting out. So we have to write the stupid article and give a picture, give pictures of the seer stone. So if you can now scroll down to where they have some pictures. This is great. This is my favorite part, because remember how we blamed the artists before in 2010 in Sweden? Keep going down, please. Not that one.
0: You don't like that one, huh?
1: No, it's not that one because that's not him translating, right? So you can get down, he gets done with this, uh, blah, 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 blah. There's Joseph. Joseph Smith. And keep going. Do, do, do. Okay, there's what happened to the seer stone. Now that there, it gives us sort of its lineage underneath that seer stone. That's one of the pictures taken out of the vault, looking very
0: nice. There, Mister Seer Stone. At any point, the church could have taken this. Again, this didn't come out until what twenty? Would you Twenty fifteen. You to mm-hmm, October. The church didn't take this stone out of the vault at any point and show it to its members collectively. I'm not hmm. talking about a person here or there privately. Collectively. And say, "Hey guys, just so you know, here's what really happened." Instead, they allowed all of us, you and me too, even though we were reading things, we were still telling the story about the Urim and Thummim being in the box with Moroni. It, it to me is insane that uh, that we weren't more honest about this.
1: Yes, well, we're as honest as we yeah. have to be. Yeah. Whereas, what, we're as, yeah, we're as, <laughs> <laughs> we're as transparent as we have to be. To paraphrase yeah. Elder Ballard. Yeah. Okay, keep going down. Keep going down, please, please, please. Okay. Okay, can you go up just a little bit? Oh, look at this. This is gorgeous. Here you go. This is art illustrating the translation process. Obviously, Richard Turley et al. feel it's necessary to import this little problem that was raised five years ago and the church having a problem with why have you been using all this artwork for crying out loud that shows something different than what you're admitting now is what really happened. Over the years, artists... This is where artist becomes a four letter word. Artists have sought to portray the Book of Mormon translation, showing the participants in many settings and poses with different material objects. Actually, it's basically the same one over and over. He's looking at the plates. Oh, I'm not quite done yet. I'm not quite done yet. Um, Each artistic interpretation is based upon its artists own views, research and imagination. (laughs) Sometimes aided by input and direction from others. Now, here's the funny thing. It's so funny when you're dealing with an organization that has such a, a compunction about lying that they'll actually say things that's, that's the truth, but they say it in such a way as to try and not say what they're saying. Sometimes aided by input and direction from others. Well, who are those others, Who, who do are you suppose? RFM? Who are those unnamed others? Well, it's the correlation committee and it's the leaders of the church through the correlation committee. That's what they don't want to say because they don't want it to be about the church
0: directing it because then the church is responsible don't, for it has been Don't evicted. blame the correlation committee. Don't blame the leaders. Blame, blame us ordinary folks who are just, just doing the best we can. Blame those
1: unnamed others who sometimes aided by input and direction. Here are a few scenes produced throughout the year. So
0: here's the first one. And by the way, I think this might be Liz Lemon Swindle. And she produced her work around 1997. I know that because my wife and I got sealed in the Washington, D.C. Temple. And mm-hmm. after we did the sealing, we hung out there for our honeymoon in, in, uh, in Maryland, the area. Kensington, I guess, is the actual city where this is at. And uh, all of her work was on display. And this looks a lot like Liz Lemon Swindle's work. So, Cool. Very nice.
1: Now look at what's underneath it. Artist's rendition of Joseph Smith studying the plates. Okay, go to the next one. By the
0: way, I'm wrong. This one's by Simon Dewey.
1: Oh, oh, well.
0: Okay, here's another one. Oh, look at that. There's the plates and there's Joseph. Okay, so now look at under what it says here. Now, wait a minute. It's possible. It's maybe, maybe in his right hand, he's holding the seer stone to his eye. Maybe. Maybe it's like a monocle and he's like Mr. Peanut. <laughs> Maybe. Like, we don't know.
1: <laughs> and, oh, look, artist portrayal of Joseph Smith. You're going to
0: notice that each one of these sentences starts to say <laughs> artist portrayal. Yeah. And now the third one. And notice that one's by Del Parson. His name comes up again, I think. Oh, yes, it will. You're
1: right. Now, here's an interesting one because there you got the breastplate and you've got, oh, the glasses. Oh. Uh. Joseph never wore this, by the way. This isn't real. This yes, is... he did. He wore it to the opera. <laughs> this is when he got the bad seats up in the balcony and he had to have the opera glasses so he could see what was going on down there on the stage. Yeah. And look at the bottom. Guess how guess what it says? <laughs> by the way, he'll be looking at the plates again. See the plates? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <but do laughs> <help it> laugh. <laughs> Artist rendition. Of Joseph Smith translating. Okay, next one. Is there another one? I think there is. With a, oh, look at this. I wonder if this is going to be an artist rendition, too. Can we see? <laughs> oh, it's an artist depiction. They changed the word it's artist portrayal, artist rendition, artist depiction, but it's always
0: artist, artist, artist,
1: artist under each of these pictures.
0: It's yeah. incredible. You so, it, a rug there uh, hanging between them. That's a Karistan rug, by the way. Is it? <laughs> I don't have no idea. I doubt it. Karistan didn't start making rugs, I think, until a little later. Wow, you are a font of information. Chicago right. World Fair, I think, is where those were first put on display. I think it's clear from each of these pictures, which
1: show Joseph Smith looking at the plates, that they want to make it clear that it's the artist's responsibility on all of them. Yeah. And is that the bottom one? I think that's the last one, isn't
0: it? Yeah, that was like the Earl, end? not to be James Earl Jones, but just Earl Jones,
1: brother. Gilles. Okay, okay. So, yeah. so now, so now, here's the thing, right? The thing is this: is that we all know that that's a bunch of hooey. We know that artists don't. Uh, paint pictures for the church and say, here, publish it. And the church goes, okay, we'll publish it just the way you did it. We have no input at all in how you portray our sacred faith events in our church. We know about the correlation committee, right? We know that they are going to ride uh, ride very tight herd on this. And it's not going to be published until it's done the way they want it. Now, that's what common sense tells us as members of the church. We understand that. I mean, if you're having a portrait painted of you or of your family and you're paying for it, well, you're going to be in charge of how it's painted, right? Yeah. You're going to have it done the way you want because you're the one who's paying for it. But we have better than just common sense because we have Del Parsons own words telling us what this process is like. And it's not for that one about Joseph translating the plates. It's for Dale Parson about his famous picture about, the red robed Jesus. You know, it's like a portrait of Jesus sitting there. Yes. And this is what he has to say. This is on his own web page. And this uh there's a question down there. It says, I know you've talked a lot about this. Let me see. Can you go down a ways? Oh, is the right- Parson? This is an interview. Yeah, boom, right there.
0: By the way, I, there's Joseph again.
1: Yes. He's ubiquitous. If you'll hang on there. I know you've talked a lot about this. This is the question, but I wanted to hear the story behind the Red Robe Christ painting, since it's so iconic in Mormonism. Let's uh, uh, go every other paragraph again, okay? For me, this is Dale Parson speaking his own words. This is what it's like. For me, the really important part is that I had a wife and daughter killed in a car accident. The only reason I say that is that when I did that painting, it was after the accident. And at that particular time in my life, I was about the most teachable, humble person. And I don't think you can dismiss that. Your turn, Bill.
0: Okay. Then the church asked me to paint three paintings of the Savior. It was so they could have things to reproduce for publishing. So if they needed an image, they'd have an image. One was washing the feet. One was knocking on the door. And the other one was a painting of a portrait.
1: So they don't just say, we need three pictures of Jesus. Go to it and we'll take whatever you want, whatever you come up with. No, he goes on. And so they asked me to do that. And I met with a group of designers and general authorities. Huh? It wasn't the first presidency or anything. And we talked, they'll be involved later. And we talked about what they would like in these paintings. I guess it would probably be called the correlation committee. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's exactly what it would be called the correlation committee. What they said was we want a strong Mormon image of the savior, a more masculine image, a Mormon image of the savior. We want a Mormon Jesus. Give us a strong Mormon image. Yeah. Your turn.
0: After that, I started going through a sketch process I'd do a sketch and I'd send it to the church. I don't know for sure who saw these sketches. I really don't. But I sent them to an art director, Warren Looch. He would take that sketch to different people and they would write comments and send them back. I went through at least five sketches. It's been 20 years or more, so it's hard for me to remember exactly.
1: At least five sketches, though. But you know, sometimes he goes on, I'd get discouraged. Why would you get discouraged, Dale Parsons? I'd do a sketch and they'd write, no, don't like that one. You know what I mean? It's not easy. You go out there and you do the best you can. And here's the church pissing all over my best efforts. I added that last part for those who are just listening to the audio. Okay, go ahead.
0: I sent a sketch to the church one night. I had a dream that somebody was talking to me and they said in the morning, the church is going to call you and tell you that sketch isn't going to work, but don't worry about it because everything will work out just fine. Then in the morning, Warren called me and said, your sketch isn't going to work. Give us another sketch. So I was ready to do another sketch, but the sketch came back in the mail about three or four days later. And there was a letter with it saying, don't worry about doing another sketch, develop this one into a painting, but do these things more intensity, more love, more intense love, I guess, huh? More intensity, more love, older looking, more Jewish looking, no forked beard, wider, wider shoulders, just things like that. And then I painted the painting and submitted to the church. And I got to know one little favor, one little, I should say that one little uh, compliment I want to pay to the church is that they asked for a more Jewish looking Jesus. Now, I don't know if we ended up with that because we were all complaining about how white Jesus is and how Mormon Jesus tends to be a white European male. He looks
1: very Nordic in
0: that picture. He does, but it, I will at least give the church credit for asking, whatever his original was, asking him to make Jesus more Jewish-looking.
1: Yeah, I don't know what he did. Maybe he was circumcised in the picture. I remember. It's not
0: Sorry, I've got the wrong soundbite. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and maybe it's a circumcised Jesus, as you point out, because it doesn't look that tan to me. No, he doesn't. But you see, what he does is he doesn't commit himself to painting
1: until everything's approved with the sketches. And it's with the sketch work that all the back and forth happens, at least five sketches. Finally, he thinks it's going to be rejected. It is. But then they say, "Okay, we'll accept this one as long as you change this, 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 this and this. Right. And so then he could start painting. So this is what really happens. He, fi- he finishes his story by saying, I don't know for sure who saw it when it was accepted. I do know that if it's a painting of the savior, it has to be approved by the first presidency. I'm betting it's the same thing for Joseph Smith, translating the book of Mormon. Yeah. And he says, and that's all I really know about what happened there. So this is a first-hand account of, su- of an artist who actually has to go through the process of having his artwork approved by the church correlation department and ultimately by the first presidency and how micromanaged that uh, whole uh, system is and yet when we know that compare that with what Richard Turley was saying to the Swedes in 2010 blame it on the artist this is just the artist's conception that's not true and that's a nice way of putting it Richard Turley yeah. And compare with what he was writing in that article in 2015 October Enzyme. This is the artist conception. This is the artist conception. This is the no, this is the correlation committee's mandate on how it looked in each and every one of those pictures. So we've got that much. Now let me see here where we are. Okay. So now we get to go moving ahead now from October 2015 Enzyme to the De- December 2017 Enzyme magazine. Where we get, I think, a glimpse of a hat. There's actually two pictures in this um, enzyme from 2017. Here's the first one, right? And here's Joseph, and he's looking at some, it looks like manuscript pages that he has in front of him. Over sitting across from him is, I think, uh, someone who's supposed to be Emma Smith, who may or may not have had some Botox injections there just prior to this picture being painted. And we also see there's no stone or anything. He's not actually translating it, it looks like. It looks like he's reviewing his work, although it does look like Emma has a pencil in her hand. So I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but I do notice something peeking over Joseph Smith's shoulder sitting there on the table. What is that that my eyes see, Bill?
0: Well, I see two things on on his left side or on the left side of him. What you see past him looks like that stove top white hat. You and can also, just see the, 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 the curve of the brim and a little bit of the side. Right. And I also think we are, if you're, if you're attentive and you're seeing it, I think on the right, that's the yeah. plate that's supposed to be covered with a sheet. And those seem to be, because it's standing up almost as tall as the hat on that table. And I would note that, the church really doesn't want the average person to be paying much attention to those. They're kind of just barely kind of sticking out. Yeah,
1: they are just barely there. You know, Bill, I'm going to have to talk with you at some point later on because I am genuinely confused as to what's supposed to be happening here in this picture. Joseph Smith is looking at manuscript pages that have writing on them, and Emma is writing while yeah, he's doing holding it.
0: Holding her pencil on the table. Maybe she's writing Joseph loves Emma or something. I don't
1: I don't know what this is supposed to represent. I know there was a time when she was actually a scribe for Joseph in the Book of Mormon translation, but it doesn't look like he's translating the Book of Mormon here because he's looking at manuscript pages. Anyway, I'll let that go for now. Maybe one of the listeners has a a better idea as to what on earth is trying to be depicted here. Uh, If anything, we have the, the glimpse of the hat, and that's very significant because... Uh, I want to give the church credit for trying to slowly introduce the hat into the artwork. Okay. On just, the other hand,
0: so yeah. I can just say here's what I think is going on. The church doesn't want to show a picture of Joseph with his head in the hat translating. The church doesn't want to it wants to it wants to portray that it's being a little more honest. And the only way you can show the hat, show the plates with a sheet over it, and and not have Joseph look foolish with his head in the hat is to have him now going back and uh, essentially acting as an editor and making sure that the manuscript looks appropriate and is right. So now Emma is looking to Joseph to say, hey, did I did I act as a scribe correctly? And this is the way the cho- church chose to to show it, to depict it. And I think for the reason that this allows them to not show Joseph's head in the hat and to leave the stone off to the side so that the average observer, the 50-year-old high priest, would look at this picture and not notice really anything at all. Hmm. So ha- so having given the good point, by the way, having
1: given the church credit for having the brim of the hat in the picture, uh, I also have to note that the presence of the hat shows that the church is aware that the hat was used. In other words, it's a dead giveaway. They know if we didn't know it before from listening to the Swedish rescue or reading the 2015 October enzyme or the church essay that there is an admission that yeah. they know it's there. They know it was used. They know how it was used, but we're not going to show it the way it was used or Joseph Smith using it the way he used it. And then in the same December, 2017 inside, there's another picture that
0: shows the hat. Uh, is this the same, the same one here? I don't think so. Okay. Is there another link? Do I have another link? What greater witness can you have? No, that's
1: the one from uh, 2021. So maybe it is down further on that other one. If you can go back to the yep. one
0: before. It. Yep. Let me try to find.
1: Yeah. Look at this. Look at this. Now look at this. This looks like. I think this is a. This isn't a a painting. This is an actual still scene, isn't it? Or is it a painting?
0: No, I think it is a still scene. I think, although it, uh, it has a little bit of like a, a sketch type look to it.
1: Yeah. Whatever it is, it looks like a very youthful looking Joseph Smith, much younger than the one in the previous picture, but. He is sitting on one side of the table. It looks like Oliver Cowdery is sitting on the other. Oliver Cowdery has been over and studiously writing. So dictation is going on, I'm pretty sure. And
0: what do we see with Joseph Smith? What is right in front of him? So, yeah, again, you see just a little bit of a hat. Now, this time it's black. And again, the historical record says it's white. And it looks like with his right hand, he is holding the plates, again, covered with a cloth. So, again, the church really... It really still wants to portray the translation differently than it occurred, right? Like the data says the plates aren't even in the room and the hat is the object as you did one of your episodes on the hat really is the central object. There's no seer stone uh, in, in the picture. So there's no way to even see that. Meanwhile, it's probably sitting in that hat that you get to see very, very little of maybe seven to 10% of the hat they're showing.
1: Yes, and so once again we have a little slice of the hat, and maybe Joseph Smith's left hand over the hat, perhaps blocking the light. But he's not looking down at the hat; he's looking across at uh, Oliver Cowdery. as Oliver Cowdery is writing there, and the plates in the napkin serve a vi- what? He's helping Oliver
0: spell out Zarahemla.
1: or Coriantor, or Coriant. <laughs> 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 but no, there's no e before the final r. Um, it's just Mr. Okay. Um, And he's going, okay, whatever you say, Joseph, all right, you're in charge. So the deal is that um, these plates in the napkins serve a very important purpose in this picture. And that purpose is to obscure the hat. So once again, you've got to know what's going on, or at least maybe seen South Park to understand what's going on here in this picture. You will not understand what's going on in the picture from the picture alone. And that's the whole point. That's the beauty of it, right? Now, I want to ask you this. Uh, and I'm sorry because I'm I haven't asked you this before, in that picture on the table, that is closer to Oliver than to Joseph. What is that sort of round dark thing? Is so that I, a fold in some paper or
0: what? Yeah, my my first thought is the white thing is an inkwell, and maybe the second one is that's what it is water.
1: To it's an inkwell. Yeah. That's what it is. It wouldn't make sense for it to be a, a seer stone that close to um, no. Oliver or but anywhere it, in this picture at all, actually
0: but maybe a divining rod, right? Didn't Oliver try to translate by putting the stickle yes. plates
1: and, you know, yes, that? you're right. But no, no, you're right. That's an inkwell. okay. So, so let me see here. What else we, ha- Oh, now, now. So it's like they're maybe making some progress here. Maybe Richard Turley and the church are making good on what Richard Turley said about trying to bring the artwork more in line with what the actual sources say. Right. And mm-hmm. then ending where we first began January this year, Two months ago, by the way, it's March 3rd, 2021. Right now they're recording this. Two months ago, the very first issue of the Liahona comes out, and they've got a new piece of art that depicts Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon.
0: Do you have that, Bill? So is that the one I had pulled up before? What can yes. you have? Yes. So when we scan down, uh-oh, uh-oh, look at this. They're using a piece of the old depiction and portraying the translation completely uh, in ways that the narrative didn't actually happen. The curtain, there was some debate, like they thought maybe a curtain between them, but when they go back to the historical sources, it sounds like there's a curtain ha- hung up in the doorway so that people in the rest of the house wouldn't be able to interrupt or, or bother the translation or see what's going on. Um, We don't really have a record of a curtain between two people.
1: It Um, is possible there was one, but you're right. It's confusing. And in fact, there are so many disparate accounts concerning this that it's a wonder that anybody actually think it's describing something that actually happened.
0: Yeah. You've got the plates on the table, which again, never happened. This
1: is the main thing I was focusing on. You've got the plates and you've got Joseph Smith and he's looking right down at those plates again.
0: Yeah. And maybe the argument is holding a stone in his right hand, but you don't get to see it. And there's no hat. Where's the hat? There's, no
1: hat, There's no, hat visible. There's no stone visible. We are once again back to when I joined the church and went on the mission and where the artist conception of Joseph Smith, just looking at the plates and this, this picture, this is where the title of tonight's show comes from. This is what bad faith looks like. This is what bad faith on the part of the church of actually trying to bring the artwork in line with the historical sources looks like. And this is what bad faith on the part of the church of continuing to try and keep its members in the dark with the false history of foundational events in the LDS church looks like.
0: That's it. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, the church has had plenty of time at this point to get it right. They've had plenty of time to get rid of images like the one that the folks are seeing on the screen. And for some reason, they, they haven't quite done that yet. And I don't know, I don't know why that is. And, and they said they were going to do it. Turley told us he was going to do it. Um, they were going get, to get to the bottom of this and start putting the correct art up. They were going to start to fix this problem. But here we are 2021 and it's still not right.
1: It was never a valid excuse to blame the artists in the first place, but that ship,
0: has long since sailed. Yeah. Yep. Amen to that. Um, So here we are. We've, we've essentially gone through and shown that the church blame the artist. By the way, there's, there's um, this one. Give brother Joseph a break, but, but the one person you'd never give a break to is the artist. Since this criticism has come up and the church has addressed it in every single instance. And now I think it's about a half dozen times. The church has blamed the artist for the problem. Meanwhile, the church, its leaders, and... Give Brother Joseph a break. The prophet himself, Joseph Smith, those guys get a break. Um, but the artists, Del Parsons and everybody else, no break for you. Everybody else is expendable. Right, exactly. So that's the th- that's tonight's show. That's what
1: I prepared for for our audience tonight, Bill.
0: I love it. I love it, too, because um, we're going to keep holding these guys accountable. They're going to have to begin to make the right changes. And I think they've made some, and there's a long way to go. And one of the things we have to start doing is no matter how crazy, no matter how unbelievable, no matter how problematic Mormonism's story is, we're going to have to present the story accurately and honestly, transparently, and forthrightly. And until we do those four things, um, you and I and other folks are going to continue to be a voice for those four things and the church will continue to lose membership um, as it is. And I think you pointed this out in this, is it this magazine RFM hmm. where the church, uh, the table of contents. Oh my gosh.
1: Yes. Can you pull up the table of
0: contents on this? It's incredible uh,
1: because we all know that the church is going to be talking about things that are the big issues, right? As far as the church is concerned, those are the things they are going to address like last year on conference when they brought up twice food storage after not having talked about it for like 20 years. And now the pandemic hits and they're caught with their pants down. So now they're gonna talk about food storage. If you scroll down in this table of contents for the January 2021 Liahona under young adults, under young adult stuff, right? Look at the titles for their different articles. Recovering from spiritual numbness, waiting for answers without doubting. And then there's more for you. Oh, look, digital only. Helping loved ones face questions and doubts about faith. My questions and Christ's love. I had left the church. So why did my husband want to join it? Faith, the antidote to uncertainty. Unclouding my vision. Finding answers to gospel questions. Are you sensing a pattern?
0: Yeah, it it seems as though... 80% of the stuff directed to the young people of the church indicates that their number one issue is that they're leaving in droves. They have doubts and maybe at best uh, they are apathetic.
1: And that's by far the best. Believe me, they're not apathetic. They are very, very incensed, especially about social issues and the way the church is dealing or not dealing with them. So, Bill, are we ready? Do
0: we have time for some phone calls? Do it. What's are excited to call in? I've been talking to some listeners. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put the uh, Google Voice up here. Let me get rid of that so we get uh, don't get all the the stuff from that's on the on the screen. But we do have it open. So folks, it is four three five two hundred. Bist. Oh, there it is. FIST. Yeah. Think. Look at that. Seven eight. The numbers for that. You can also type in uh, dirt on your phone. So one 4 3 5, 200 dirt or 1435 200 fist which we really love. And then there's also just the numbers 200 3 4, 7, 8. Here comes our uh, first caller. And so I will answer Call that. Call from Aaron. Aaron, is that the name? Yes, this is Aaron. Aaron, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, What are your thoughts about tonight's episode?
4: Well, you know, I I have a family member that does artwork for the ensign and for the church. In fact, I've been a model myself for it. Um, but I have watched the process he has to go through to get that approved uh, to even be in the church magazine. So uh, it rings a little uh, disingenuine when when they say that it's the artist's fault. So yeah, I what, just
0: thought. What is that process, by the way, Aaron? Can you share a little bit of what what goes on, like where that has to get approved, and what you're what your insider knowledge is of that process? Uh,
4: from what I've seen, of course, I'm, I'm kind of on the outside of it, but it uh, he has to he has to initially paint it, and then he submits that to a church panel who uh, looks it over. If there are changes that need to be made, if uh, somebody has too much facial hair, or their hair's too long, or a, shirt, a skirt's too short, uh, he gets that back, adjusts it, and submits it again. Um, So it's not just one person, but it's a whole process. Um, Just crazy that they would say it's the artists.
0: Yeah. And I'll just add add that kind of control. Yeah. We're all aware, Aaron, of the instance where they take the angels wings off of a famous painting. We're all aware of extending where the shoulders of women are showing in a famous uh, painting of Jesus uh, at the tomb or the witnesses at the tomb. It's actually the same painting. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the shoulder length of the dress on the angels is extended um, below so the, the further along the shoulder, so you don't see shoulder because that would, you know, hell, hell, you know, hell or high water. What would happen if we saw a little female right. shoulder every once in a while? And so, the idea is that um, these guys have definitely got some deep influence on what art gets created and how that art gets altered before it's used in a church magazine or some other way.
1: Yeah. Yep.
6: That's yeah. my that's my point.
0: Thank you for the call. Thank Eric. you for all you're doing. Yeah. Have a great day. It. Thanks
6: for
1: the call. By the way, that's the the life uh, that's paint that's Carl Heinrich Block B L O C H who painted yeah. that.
0: And while the next call is coming coming in, I'll try to uh, pull that up. Um,
1: Carl with the C Heinrich
0: Block B L O C H. Yeah. I'll take okay. Call and I'll find it. Gary. Gary, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Reel. Uh, what, uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Bill, RFM.
4: Hey, um, if you notice in those pictures with the, the hat, as a TVM, you wouldn't even think anything of it if you didn't know about the stairstones. So people in those days wore hats all the time, so they wouldn't think anything of it. But if they say you never told us, they could say, oh, look, we had a glimpse of a
0: hat, yeah. No, absolutely. The church could certainly uh, claim that it's being honest and forthright, <laughs> and the reality is it still wants to obscure the deeper story. Because what the reality is, uh, a seer stone is just as crazy as a pair of spectacles. Both of those require oh, you absolutely. to take the leap into supernatural magic, but only one of those leads you into studying the history around Joseph Smith's treasure digging. And that I think my friend is where the problem lies. Yep, exactly. Yeah, appreciate it my friend, good point. Thank you for the phone call. Okay, hey. thank you. Okay, a couple of good calls there RFM. Yeah, very good. Now yeah. this is the, the
1: the artistic version of the essays which we want to have the information out there, but we're going to bury them. So hopefully nobody will find them in these artistic depictions. We'll have little pictures, little slices of the hat that a person can see, but nobody's going to think twice about it unless you know already, and then you'll understand the significance.
0: Yeah. In fact, I'm going to pull up here. I think I've got the photo finally, and I will put it up here on the screen. Is this Carl Heinrich Bloch? Look at that. Yeah. So the wings are gone when the, when Mormonism gets Famous art. By the way, you you really shouldn't desecrate famous art. Um, I'm gonna pick up the call here, and then I'll, I'll call move, from. Yeah, uh, give us just a just give us just a second, my friend. We'll get you right on. Okay. Un yeah. momento, por favor.
3: All
0: right. So, um, looking at that, I mean, you the one have, on the left is the original. The wings there
1: are off. They're gone. Yes, you have the two female adoring angels kneeling on either side of the
0: resurrecting Christ Please. with. Wings and shoulder. bare shoulders. Heavens forbid, we see a little female shoulder here and there. Uh, but right. Jesus' shoulder. Notice him; he gets to keep his shoulders showing. He's not a sexual. <laughs> woman's job to keep the guy from from being turned on and becoming a sexual maniac in Mormonism. But you can see you you've definitely altered a famous piece of art, which really shouldn't shouldn't happen, should
1: it? I don't know. Maybe they bought the copyright to it. I have no idea. All I know is they took off the angels because in Mormonism, we're the only people who understand that angels really don't have wings. If I said they took off the angels, I meant they took the wings off the angels and they added the shoulder caps so that those angels could be wearing garments.
0: Yeah. Give me a second. I'm going to get
1: this off the screen. So in the first one we know they're not wearing garments because we can see their shoulders.
0: Are you still there, caller? Yes, I am. Okay. What was the name? Was it Gary? Roger. Roger. Sorry, my friend. Roger, you are on That's the right. air with Mormonism Live, and uh, you're with Bill Real and RFM. Uh, what is your thought tonight?
4: Well, the one I was going to mention was one, the picture you just, just barely took down, and that was the picture of uh, Joseph Smith, the black hat. Oh, and I yeah. think our RFM has made the, uh, the point in a previous podcast that he put out that the importance of that being a white hat and, um I've got both a black hat and a white hat to uh demonstrate what r f m shows, and that is that you can't see through a black hat. Right. so it was important for Joseph Smith to have a white hat so that uh he could see what was in the bottom of his hat
0: yeah and, and r f m you you know again, I would point listeners to your episode. do you remember what number it was? Oh, I do not remember the number It
1: had to do with magic in the Book of Mormon or something
0: yeah What Do you remember what the title of it was, RFM?
1: It was like Magic in the Book of Mormon. Okay. Sorry, I can't remember. It was back when I was doing a spade of them uh, for nine weeks.
0: Yeah, it was a great episode, and I remember you getting lots of positive feedback about that one. Um, It should be noted when you're a magician, right, RFM, when you're a magician, you tell the, the audience one thing, but that doesn't mean that you're not breaking the rule yourself in some other way. And so when he tells the audience that he's putting his face into the hat and excluding all light, You're to believe as a viewer that when he puts his face into the hat, there's no light in there. And the reality is, as the white hat lets light in, it is a little sleight of hand trick, right? The idea is when he puts his face in the hat, plenty of light is coming in, and it allows him to see whatever he needs to see inside the hat.
1: Right. And the question I raised there, looking at this from a magician's point of view and in a magician's trick, it is really speculative. And it's not necessary or required. I want to make that part clear. I'm not saying this is what happened. All I'm saying is, is that uh, from a magician's point of view, when he takes a stone and places it in the hat and then places his face over the hat to look at the stone. All the attention is being focused on the stone. Yeah. When really, if it's a trick, unless there's actually something coming off the stone that he's reading. Yeah. Which is probably not likely. It's not rational. Yeah. The stone in the hat is an excuse for him to put his face over the hat and look at something in the hat that nobody else can see, which is probably not the stone, but perhaps something else, such as uh, maybe some notes or something like that. Brief headings or outlines or how to spell Coriantum correctly, cool. which he can see because it's a white stovepipe hat. He couldn't see it or it black stovepipe hat.
0: Imagine, imagine some manuscript paper with things written on it, black ink and it being on the inside of the white hat and light coming in and whatever, just some degree, 10% of light coming in from the window in the room, candle on the table, whatever it is. And now that you've got black ink on essentially white paper, although I grant, it's probably a little darker than that. And you've got a little bit of light coming through this white hat. that, That ink, that written stuff would actually stand out, I think pretty decent and I've got a hat at home. I think I'm gonna try this maybe tonight and we'll see if that works. But yeah. Would you?
1: And of course, you know, hat t- these stovepipe hats are famous for people having speeches written in it that they get up on the stand and then they take off their hat and they pull their speech out and put their hat back on.
0: Right. Right. Um, caller, what's the name? Matt. 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 You are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Rio. What are your thoughts tonight?
5: Awesome to talk to you guys again. This has been a big uh, frustration for me, especially as I've learned a lot. What's going on? And I've been telling my friends about some of these issues that as the church becomes more honest, sort of, uh, you have to pay attention in the doctrine or in the come follow me for, um, doctrine comes this year, January 25th through the 31st, uh, I was showing my family, some of my family members, how that's not totally honest. And you, there's the video that they have in there, the video link, which is made of several years ago. They have the picture you guys were showing earlier and then they have the another picture clip of the uh, video, but this one. But it's always interesting how the video itself or the pictures that they're depicting are always from certain angles to obscure that. It's very on purpose. Whether they're clipping it out or angle or um, videoing, they're always making sure only to show enough just to give an idea. And I, I love it how he never actually sticks his face in any of the pictures ever that i've ever seen because it really starts to detract the point of the of the book of mormon uh, or the plates when they're covered up if you ever get to see them yeah but you never actually see him shoving his face in the hat like it's he's supposed to ever whether it's face, whether his hand is next to it around it whatever
0: yeah they don't they don't want to show it and if they do they want to obscure it enough that the average person who doesn't know the full story uh, isn't bothered by it at all and doesn't go looking for more Uh, Thank you for the call, my friend.
1: Right. It's like the Mormon version of a burlesque act. They show enough to titillate, but not enough for, you know, to show the whole thing.
0: Didn't we come into contact with a story maybe a year ago or so when they were producing that video that I think he's talking about that they showed too much of the hat and the stone and too much of how the translation may have occurred. And they got some, um, a request from leadership, essentially saying like, we can't do it that way. We need to back off and show less of the hat, less of the stone, have it just be a tiniest little fraction of a moment in a, in just an obscured part of it showing. Uh, does that ring a bell RFM? Cause I, I remember the story. It sort of does. And I can't vouch for the the truth of that, but I can say
1: that it would make sense that the correlation department and the general authorities would have as much uh, supervision and oversight and control over video reproductions of church history as uh, paintings of church history. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, how many more calls you want to take tonight? 18. Okay, 18 more calls it is. Uh, you are on the air on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. Uh, what uh, What do you got for us tonight?
6: Oh, so I was just calling because I had read earlier today with regards to the Hoffman forgeries. The, the church put up a new uh, topic essay on their website. Oh, did they? interesting they're still trying to hide information um in what they're putting out with regards to this um i'll just read you a quick little what's what's the title of it, says, it um it is called hoffman forgeries
0: okay. oh because they knew this was coming i gotcha yeah they knew so, the netflix thing was coming out
6: exactly and so they one of the sentences in here it says he also forged a 1830 letter from Martin Harris known as a salamander letter, which described Joseph Smith being involved in folk magic practices. And when you read that, it, it's making it sound like the forgery is also the, the folk magic
0: practices, kind of hiding that, that fact. I found it. Mm. Put the it's link there. You put the link in the comments and I'll put it up on the screen for everybody too. me. Put link in, a link in the comments. What, uh, what is, uh, what are you talking about? Do you have a you talk to the audience and the audience comments there on StreamYard?
1: Uh, let me see here. Yeah. So, uh, where would this be? I've, I've copied the link. So, where do I put it in the just the comments there? Yeah,
0: just put it in a comment to me. Maybe a, a private comment or. Um,
1: yeah, well, where do I put it? I I, I got the comments. Right, private chat on Streamyard. I can do private chat easy, but it also has comments. So, where do I put it in comments? You just at the very bottom. It should does
0: it say all and let you post anything. No, there's just a, a comment from Matthew Allen at the bottom. Gotcha. Put it in the private chat and I'll copy it over to the listeners. Okay. Watchers. Yeah, th- there it works.
1: Okay. Like All okay, right. So here it comes for you and you can put it up. You got that? Yeah, yeah. I'm- yeah. There is a brand new entry under the gospel topics dealing with uh Mark Hoffman and his handiwork. So thank you very much to that listener. Who is that? Matt? Was it Matt who called Matt? Was, Matt was that that's the name, right? I think so. Anyway, very thanks to that listener for pointing that out. We've got a new entry in the gospel topics. It's been several years since the last one. They still haven't gotten around to the Adam-God theory, but I, and I don't think they're going to make it that far. But there it is, the Hoffman forgeries. So this is going to be a subject of much discussion now because of the Netflix um, miniseries, three-part series, for the next uh, little while. And the church wants to try and get ahead of the curve by putting their own spin on how it was that they were Pro- the prophet seers and revelators were hoodwinked by a forger and murderer
0: yeah matt do you do you did you read the whole thing and what was the what was the biggest kind of thing that kind of um, rubbed you the wrong way in this gospel topic essay
6: um like I was saying it was um, mostly oh, let's see one two three about four paragraphs down okay. and they're just uh, so it goes into Hoffman's forgeries, including documents from early American political and literary figures. So they're just throwing truth in with um, with the forgery, trying to, to, to claim that some truth is forgery. And there's a sentence in there that says he also forged an 1830 letter from Martin Harris, known as the Salamander Letter, which described Joseph Smith being involved in folk magic practices as if he wasn't, yeah. as if that was part of the forgery.
0: Yeah. yeah. I get it. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually interested to read this one. I'm going to go home tonight and start watching this uh, Netflix documentary. I think
1: I will too, but uh, do we have time for a couple more calls, Bill?
0: Yeah, uh, that'd be great. Let's do a couple more and I'll, uh, I'll hang up with you, Matt. Thank you for the call. And thank you for pointing that out to us. Um, I'll copy that to all the listeners here as well. Uh, so or the watchers, I should say the viewers and uh, all right, yeah, have a great day, my friend. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a couple more calls. Not 18. We'll do two. Okay. We'll compromise.
1: I'm a reasonable man, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things.
0: Yeah, and uh, that fits well with Mormonism, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, maybe nobody wants to call. Maybe everybody's reading the that essay now. Are there, are there no more callers, Bill?
0: Uh, as of right this second, there is not. We can wait another couple of seconds here and see if someone jumps on. Does no one wish to bear their testimony in the few minutes remaining? Yeah. 435-200-3478 or (laughs) Uh, 200-435 is the area code for Southern Utah.
1: Okay. Boy, I tell you that Mark Hoffman, that whole episode back in the 1980s, I lived through it that shook testimonies to the ground. It was earth shaking. I remember it. It was really, really hairy. And one of the best things that happened to the LDS church was when Mark Hoffman blew those people up and everything turned out to be forgeries. Oh, my gosh. They must have breathed a huge sigh of relief. Phil.
0: I think we've got another caller here, RFM. Phil, you are on the air, Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Rio. Uh, what's on your mind, my friend?
6: I'm just wondering. Well, first, let me just say I love you guys. You guys are just fantastic. Just love absolutely you
0: love it.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> Can you hear me, Phil? Can you hear At RFM? At what point?
0: Phil, can you hear RFM? Say something again, RFM. Could you hear me, Phil? Can you hear RFM? I, I can't. You can't. I don't think you can. Bill, would you tell Phil I love him, too? Uh, RFM says he loves you, too,
1: Phil.
6: Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank oh, you, RFM. Oh, that means yeah. more than you could even know
0: don't know why you can't. I'm using the device I, I'm supposed to be using. Anyway, uh, go ahead and share your thoughts with us, my friend. Sorry to interrupt you.
6: Yeah, no worries. I'll throw out the question and then I'll uh, I'll just disconnect because I'm, I'm sure you guys will be able to answer without any back and forth. But uh, right now, the church has no problem with, or the church leadership has no problem with, throwing previous artists and their works under the bus. But right now, with their concerted effort to try and update that art to be more representative, even if just slightly, At what point do they switch from throwing the artists under the bus for misrepresentation and start throwing members under the bus for not being aware of the incredibly subtle hints in current artist renditions?
0: Yeah. Thank you. I'll hang up with you and we'll address that. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Your thoughts RFM.
1: Yeah. We've already seen that happening. That's a, that's a standard apologetic tactic. Which is to, when a church member says, I never heard about this, or I grew up in the church, I've been a member for decades, I've been active, I've attended all my meetings, I've read all the manuals, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and I didn't know this, right? And then they say, well, you didn't study hard enough. It's your fault. Here's an obscure article from some obscure place. And if you didn't know about it, it's not because the church has been hiding it. It's because you didn't study hard enough. So I've seen that before.
0: And it should be noted too this this Swedish rescue when they get yeah. to the end of this thing uh, they draw a line in the sand and they say look you know this is our best attempt at answering questions you either you either either get on board with us or you get off get off and you just you take off and you leave and don't come back they give the Swedish members an ultimatum and and to a T we've got multiple witnesses who are there and we've got the audio of the conversation that happened at the end of it. And then even after that ends, there is more follow-up with all of these Swedish members. And to a T, this group of Swedish members report that they were told, that's it. That's that's our best attempt at answering your questions. You either stay active in the church and keep your mouth shut or get lost. You get out of here and you don't come back. And they were told to pick one of those two paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it becomes pretty clear that when you hear apologetics, and those apologetics don't work, You you don't get to stay around and offer the truth. You either get lost or you stay and keep your mouth shut.
1: Yeah. By the way, something really funny that happened in that was where Richard Turley stepped in it. He really misspoke at one point. It's when he's talking about polygamy, the second answer to the question, where he says, here's what we know about polygamy. What we know about polygamy is that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. Now, a lot of Mormons don't know that, but he did. And I but wait a second. Did you just admit that? Most Mormon, I think he said most Mormons. He may have yeah. said many don't know that, but he did. And I'm going, okay. So whose responsibility is it for the fact that most Mormons don't know that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, especially, Brother
0: especially when you teach people that anything outside the church is not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. You are the source for the truth. You are the source for good history. You're the source for the right narrative, and and then when people don't know anything, then you don't blame yourself, even though you're the only source for truth for those people. Right. All from. Awesome. Okay. Last caller. What's your name? Charlie, 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 you are on Mormonism live with RFM and Bill real. Uh, what uh, you're the last caller for the night. Make it good. My friend, what do you got for us? All right. Well, I was just saying that all these things that they say that they've been uh, transparent, transparent,
3: and teaching people forever. I never heard about any of these things until I was in the NTC, and it definitely wasn't from the large group meetings or the small group meetings or the big devotionals or anything like that. It was from other missionaries who grew up in Utah, and they're telling me these things. I was like, no, Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist. Yeah, he was. He married a 14-year-old. I'm like, whatever. Okay, maybe I can get on board with him being a polygamist, but the salamander letter thing, what's that about? I mean, I'd never heard of any of these things, and I thought I was very educated in the church i knew quite a bit i was a good missionary i was able to teach people but then i
4: find out all these things from rfm podcasts and, and your podcasts and john delin these and you know it's it's very upsetting and i appreciate what you guys are doing to help
0: straighten things out i appreciate it thank you my friend appreciate that have a great night
1: Yeah, and I'm really sorry that it is upsetting, but you know, it is upsetting. And I've certainly been there, been through that. I know you have. I know everybody who's gone through this has. when you build your entire worldview and not just your worldview, your cosmic view. We're talking about into the eternities, your entire view around what you've been taught in Mormonism. And you have been told to trust the leaders of the church because they are prophecyers and revelators. And at a minimum, they're honest people who are going to be telling you the truth about what to do and what God wants. And then you start finding out that they have been shining you on for decades. And actually probably since the beginning of the church,
0: really. Yeah. I, I wonder, he mentioned Weird Alma and gaslighting. I I think we'd be okay using this song. And I think it would be a really appropriate ending for our episode tonight. Oh yeah. What do you think? It's gaslighting. <laughs> what do you whoa, think? Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. What do you think we conclude with that? Can you do that from there? Yeah, from the yeah. control panel. Yeah, I can do it from here. Let me, uh, let me share the screen. Now it's going to put. Let me remove this. You were
1: the captain on the bridge of the starship
0: Mormonism Live. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I hope so. Let's see what happens here. Share screen. I'm going to put us up. So now it's going to be like the the temple mirrors for a second. We're going to see okay. all eternity. But if I change my thing, and here we go. You ready? Yeah. Closing song. Here it is. Thanks. RFM, by the way, great episode. And I appreciate uh, all the prep you put into this one and uh, I'll get with you here in the next day or so. And we'll figure out next week. Okay,
1: great. Oh, by the way, everybody, I'll be on with John DeLynn on Friday morning at shoot. I think it's eight o'clock mountain time. We're going to be talking in depth about view of the Hebrews. So hopefully everybody can tune in then I know you don't have to work for a living. Uh,
0: See you then. (laughs) Bye-bye. View of the Hebrews, right? You just read view of the Hebrews. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a fun conversation. I'll be tuned in. Hope everybody else does too. Uh, here I it want is. my
1: view of the Hebrews merit badge for that.
0: You should get one. Here is Gaslighting by Weird Elma. The Mormon church is so dogmatic.
7: It's really problematic. It can feel so traumatic when the gaslighting, gaslighting. They'll make you question everything about your own sanity, oh yeah When you question, they make you question If something seems wrong, that's just the way it's supposed to be, oh yeah It's your problem, not the church's problem If you point out something's bad, then they'll say you must be mad They'll attack your real intent while dismissing what you meant It's gaslighting no, no, no. Oh, well, it's so gaslighting with the things the Prophet Joe would do No seer he didn't use a seer But then oh. they change the narrative and tell you that they always knew He used a seer of course he used a seer It's always been, or well, yeah, it's gaslighting. Howlin' said the missionary force would grow as God directed, oh yeah But when it shrank, they had to say that was exactly as expected, oh yeah You thought 2 plus 2 was 4, might not be that anymore
8: Cause when you start reproving those goalposts Start a-moving gaslighting I am Elder Stephen L. Stickenbottom, and I welcome you to this brand new exhibit at the Church History Museum entitled, Transparency Through the Ages. As you may know, our church has always been open and honest about our history, and so we Excuse wanted to... Excuse me? Yes?
7: I know the tour is just beginning, but I already want to bang my head
8: against a wall. Oh, sure. Well, please use the wall to your left. Okay. We seem to get this a lot. You can see the impression of Bill Real's head over there. Okay now, moving on! Our first stop is to show you all of the several different accounts of Joseph Smith's first vision. As you can plainly see through the foggy glass display case on the miniature printed copies, there are no important differences between any of these accounts. It
7: looks like this 1832 diary page was torn out and taped back in.
8: Oh no, you must be imagining that. It has normal wear and, um, tear for a document of its age. Now over here we have the Book of Abraham. I heard that has some problems with its translation. I'm afraid you heard wrong. See, it never was a translation.
7: But it says right here, translated from the papyrus.
8: By no, the you see, that's not what translation means in this case. It means that Joseph was inspired by a document that had no connection whatsoever with Abraham to write a book that claims that Abraham himself wrote the book. It's rather obvious, really. Oh, and when Joseph translated the book of Abraham, he may have used this beautiful seer stone, which we are proud to display here.
7: Wait, didn't Joseph Fielding Smith insist that seer stones were never used? No,
8: you're taking that out of context. You know, you want to be careful about playing whack-a-mole with church history issues. Now, if you'll come this way, you can see a diorama depicting Joseph Smith surrounded by over 30 of his beloved wives. Of course, we understand and accept that he practiced polygamy and polyandry, as expected. Some of his lives look really young. Some were as young as, um, several months shy of 15. But as I'm sure you're aware, several months shy of 15 was in the extreme outlier range for what was the customary age for marriage at the time. We were
7: never taught any of this stuff at church.
8: Well, if you didn't know, then it's your own fault, because many egg-headed church historians and scholars have known about these things for years. You're just not well-read enough, apparently. Hey, you want to go back to that wall again? Yeah, let's go.
7: It was so gaslighting when the gospel topic essays were done We used to say that stuff was anti Now it's oh. so gaslighting when they're redefining translation When it says translate, it doesn't mean translate The things they twist, uh-huh. sure make you pissed uh-huh. It's gaslighting